Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 314. Ooh, it's the pie episode, Julia. The wild hunt. I was like, oh, are we talking about pie? Wait, I didn't prepare anything <laughs> about pie. <laughs> we are learning about the wild hunt, which sounds really fun, but I have no idea what this is specifically. Yeah, so this is really interesting because kind of as winter is settling in here in the Northern Hemisphere, I've been thinking of the things that kind of remind me of winter in the folkloric sense. And one of the things that I was thinking of was the wild hunt. And this is something that is often associated with midwinter, usually around November and December, because this is when it's commonly believed that the veil between the living and the dead is at its thinnest. And I know you said you don't know a lot about the wild hunt, but what is the imagery? What does that like phrase kind of evoke for you in your mind? Yeah, I'm imagining like a big boar or a stag, you know, or some kind of like mythical creature. Maybe it's all white. I don't know. But something to do with like uh, letting go of inhibitions and like going on a big old sort of grand hunt together. Maybe the hunt is people. I truly, Julia, have no idea. I love when I can kind of surprise you a little bit yeah. in these episodes. So interesting imagery. I will say you're not totally far off in some regards, but okay. you're you're not exactly on the money this time. You're not. Fair you enough. didn't pull the classic Amanda, you know, point to the fence and do a big swing and hit it exactly where it needs to be. But that's okay. I love it. So the Wild Hunt is a common myth or story from Germany, Scandinavia, France, and Britain. And while the leader of this hunt, because there is a leader of this hunt, depends on who is telling the story, it is generally a chase that is led by a mythological figure, often escorted by or leading a supernatural or ghostly group of hunters in pursuit. Mm, wow. What is being pursued is an interesting question, or what is being hunted is, again, depending on who is the one telling the story. And while the themes feel very ancient in many ways, I think it might surprise you, Amanda, and surprise our listeners as well to learn that the first written record of the Wild Hunt was actually documented by Jacob Grimm of the Grimm Brothers. Really? It, I definitely had like medieval associations with a name like that. Yes. And uh, unsurprising because we'll get into a little bit later, but it does predate the Grimm brothers. But the first written and like codified version of the story was by Jacob Grimm. So here's a, a great quote giving a great definition of the wild hunt by Ronald Hutton from, quote, the wild hunt in the modern British imagination. So here's the quote. In 2001, Hilda Ellis Davidson, one of the leading British experts in folklore and in medieval European mythology, defined the wild hunt as one of many names for a company of dark riders who pass through the sky at night or else along lonely roads. She added that its leaders could be supernatural or legendary figures or historical personalities, and that it was usually regarded as sinister and menacing, quote, an impressive example of the intrusion of dangerous otherworld powers into daily life. The name The Wild Hunt, as used for the spectral cavalcades, was coined and popularized in the early 19th century by the leading German scholar Jacob Grimm, who drew extensively on records of contemporary folklore, mostly German, which he combined with medieval and ancient texts to assemble his construct. Hell yeah. Basically, I love these quotes, the company of dark riders who pass through the sky at night. 
I also really love the intrusion of dangerous otherworld powers into daily life, which is going to be a theme that we'll talk about a little bit later in this episode. So it's really, really interesting. And Jacob Grimm is kind of center to how we see the wild hunt as we do today. Before we get started, a little bit of background and context on the hunt before we get into like the real history of it. Uh, what you need to know first off is that the hunt was commonly believed to be this foreboding sign, as the quote mentioned earlier. It was said that it was sent after sinners of some kind, or it was a sign that someone's doom was close at hand. We see a lot of European folklore where it is a dark figure of some kind that is bringing in a foreboding future or a, a doom prophecy of of some kind, like a banshee, for example. So in a way, the hunt is people. Exactly. Amanda, you you were <laughs> right. I don't want to give it away completely, but you're a little bit right on that one. Hell yeah. However, it wouldn't be very interesting if that was just kind of the end of it. Like, oh, you saw the, the hunt and now someone you know is going to die or whatever. Of course, a person who encountered the hunt would sometimes be rewarded in some way if they performed a service to the leader of the hunt adequately, very Fae style. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. you've been enthralled by the Fae, but if you perform this task, mayhaps you'll be given a boon of some <laughs> kind, you know? Yeah, you're probably going to die, but if, if you're nice, then maybe you won't. Exactly, exactly. Or if you're brave enough or strong enough or clever enough, you won't die, you know? Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, it was associated with midwinter because this was the time where the veil between the living and the dead was thin. And also because of that, it was kind of seen as a psychopomp. It was like literally a gathering of souls or spirits, right? And then there was also this uh, sometimes portrayal of it being this endless punishment where spirits are always roaming or never able to settle down and rest. And finally, it is also seen as a situation where the joy of the hunt is what drives the participants in it to the point where it could be seen as a punishment or a reward in the divine afterlife. But it's also worth noting that this is always kind of flavored with some sort of dark motivation driving them. It is a debaucherous joy of hunt that these spirits are feeling. And if this flavor feels somewhat familiar after listening to spirits for however long you've been <laughs> listening and you sense a little flavor of, lol, it's not pagan, it's fine. This is because it's often told through a Christian lens or like a Christian background, despite the very pagan flavors of the wild hunt. So shout out to a real good story that is, lol, it's not pagan, it's fine if I've ever seen one. Incredible. As we can tell by the background of the wild hunt, it is something that feels very ancient. And because of that, there are obviously many, many variations and possible folklore traditions that we could list as the origins of the hunt. And we'll dip into those a little bit later. But the real origin of the wild hunt as we see it now is actually more recent than we would have thought with Jacob Grimm in the early 19th century. I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with Jacob Grimm and his work. If you've listened to the podcast or if you're interested in uh, fairy tales and folklore at all. And we know him from documenting fairy tales with his brother Wilhelm, but he was also a folklorist in his own right. I feel like we've talked about that a little bit in earlier episodes, right? Mm -hmm. So as such, many contemporary folklorists agree that Jacob Grimm was the one that created this unified construct of the wild hunt by stitching together a lot of variations and ideas under this one umbrella, right? 
That makes sense, especially with a myth where, you know, we're hearing characterizations like it's the spiritual realm, it's the physical realm, it could be a punishment, it could be a reward, you can get out of it maybe or you can't. It definitely makes sense that this is a, you know, a theme we see across a lot of different traditions versus like a discrete story. Exactly. And in the case of Jacob Grimm, it's super interesting. And we'll talk a little bit about the, the problematic nature of it later. But Jacob Grimm very much wanted to create this solidified or unified version of the story because Grimm's work at the time was about creating an idea of unified Germany with a unified culture, which in hindsight was not a great framework for him to lay out because, sure, sure. you know, obviously... <laughs> not great for the standards of folklore practices and also for the future of Germany during that time period. But because that was his goal, it makes sense for him to want this unified version of the Wild Hunt. And while in this process, a lot of Grimm's methodology was uh, probably not to the standards of folklore studies now, most scholars studying folklore agree that the mythos does predate Jacob Grimm and most certainly predates Christianity, but then grew to incorporate Christian motifs and beliefs. The point, though, that I'm trying to get at is that the origins of the myth are fairly scattered, especially as scholars try to determine what pieces Grimm stitched together to create his version of the tale. Right on. So as as we've talked about in previous episodes, there's a lot of folklorists going back in time and being like, okay, maybe that part came from this, but we'll never know because Jacob Grimm didn't like write down like, oh, I took this from this and this from this. And now that's right. how I got my tale. No, he was just like, this is the story. No further questions, your honor. You bought the book. That's all you have to know. Exactly. So Grimm laid out his version of the Wild Hunt in a single book, which was published in 1835, titled Deutsch Mythology. Picture that in a more German phrase, but it's just the word mythology, but in German. Yep. And despite the somewhat fraught way that Grimm went about his research, as I just mentioned, this publication in its time was pretty pioneering scholarly work. Grimm assembled the basic body of material on which that concept was erected and identified the original mythology that inspired it as one of a nocturnal ride of dead heroes led by a pagan god and his female consort. And it even popularized the term wild hunt as the name of this phenomenon, which we still refer to to this day. So even though Grimm was pulling from a bunch of different sources, Grimm was basically picking and choosing what he wanted the wild hunt to be. He did kind of solidify what we now refer to as the wild hunt. So we kind of have to give him a little credit over there. Just a little bit. Just a bit. Just a bit. But what were these pagan and pre-Christian stories that Grimm was drawing from? Well, we definitely have a good idea of what they were, even if we're not 100% certain. There are two dominant folklore motifs that, when combined and changed, gave us the elements that were eventually umbrellaed under Grimm's Wild Hunt. So the first that we're going to talk about is the March of the Dead, or basically a sighting of a slow march or parade of dead either bodies or spirits. Often in folktales, witnesses encounter the horror of it and then take it as a warning away from a life of sin. Again, this is the, the post-Christian lens. Right. It's sort of basically this parade of torture, for lack of a better phrase. 
And the story is meant to offer as a caution to those leading immoral lives. And, you know, if you're saying to yourself, yeah, that's very Christian, you're right. Some (laughs) folklorists think that this predates Christianity. But to be honest, there's no real evidence that this motif existed before the more Christian versions that we see later on. There's nothing more Christian than it's like, oh, look at the parade of people who sinned in life. You don't want to be one of those. Change your ways. How embarrassing it would be. It would be so embarrassing. Oh, no. (laughs) So the clearest example of this March of the Dead was written down by a Benedictine monk named Orderic Vitalis, which is a cool name. Got a shout out who authored a book called Historica Ecclesiastica in the late 11th and early 20th centuries. Not sure the exact time that he wrote it, somewhere around that time period. His account of this March of the Dead comes from another priest named Walkalin, who was summoned by a sick man who lived at the edge of his parish. So as the priest was traveling home from this man's house, he heard what sounded like a large troop and went to hide because he's like, oh no, this could be anyone. Let me get out of here. Before he could do so, he was confronted by a giant who orders him to stay put and watch the procession that's going by. So the priest watches this strange procession as it passes him. He sees neighbors who had recently died. He sees adulterous women. He sees an assassin who killed another priest being all part of this procession of the dead, right? Wow. All were experiencing, according to this priest, various forms of torture. And following behind them was this, quote, immense army in which no color was visible, only blackness and fiery flames. All were mounted on great war horses and fully armed as if they were prepared for immediate battle, and they carried black banners. Incredible. It's really striking, honestly, the imagery. I love this idea in which no color was visible. Imagine it's nighttime, you're a priest, and it's very scary. This priest, Walkenlin, is like, oh, shit, no one's ever going to believe me about this. So I need proof of what I saw. (laughs) Sure. And so he tries to capture a riderless horse as proof to take home with him. You couldn't just like, you know, grab like maybe a banner or a piece of, I don't know, something. Yeah, Yeah. a piece of cloth, like a cutting from someone's robe. I don't know. You need to take a fucking full horse, my guy. Really? Julia, you know I like horses. I know you do. Here's the thing that us horse girls know that the rest of the world might not. If a horse is riderless, it's for a reason. Mm -hmm. Riderless horses, don't try to ride them. You probably won't be successful. (laughs) That's absolutely true, especially when it's a spectral parade of torture and spectral horse, probably, you know? Exactly. You're absolutely correct. As soon as his hands fall on the horse, he is overcome by the simultaneous feeling of being burned and being frozen. And he, in the process, is spotted by four knights who are part of this retinue, right? So one of them grabs him by the throat and Walkenland, being a priest, calls out for the Virgin Mary. And in doing so, this other knight comes over and orders the first to release the priest, identifying himself as Walkenland's brother. Whoa. So he's like, I didn't know that my brother was dead. Oh, oh no. So he cautions Walkenland to leave and to not speak for three days, which is like, again, some face shit, but also a period of enforced silence after witnessing these events. And Walkenlin flees back to his parish. Natch. 
naturally. I mean, yeah, it should have done that before, but I'm glad that he's fleeing now. And that's really interesting, the um, kind of not talking for three days just to, like, let shit settle, which I think is a pretty good plan. Like, you, it's not going to be harmed. Lots of people, you know, use silence uh, as a, you know, a healing tool. And even though you might want to, like, maybe part of this is is as a tool, like, you might want to run out and tell everybody you possibly met what happened to you. But there is a thing to be protected, and you may draw kind of further attention on yourself if you do. Absolutely. And again, I feel like that's very Fey rules. Like, do do not speak of this for three days, or else you'll be you'll be doomed to fall into the the order of it again. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So Vitalis, the guy who's writing all this down, claims that he heard all of this directly from Walkenlin, who lived for another fifteen years and claimed to have seen the burn mark where the sinister knight had grabbed him by the neck, which to me feels like real like medieval urban legend energy like oh i heard yeah. this from my cousin who was definitely there and saw it all happen he had a big burn man i saw it with my own eyes yeah and that couldn't <laughs> have happened any other way it was in the direct shape of a hand yeah yeah <laughs> so i super love that it's great so similar to Orderic Vitalis's March of the Dead that he wrote down there is a similar version called the March of the Spirits oh In this version, a supernatural figure, usually a woman, and her spiritual retinue are the stars of the story. The posse sometimes includes the spirits of women that did the bidding of their leader while their bodies stayed asleep at home, which I think is very similar to, we talked about this a while back in an episode about those Italian witches who would basically like astral project in their sleep and like do fun little witchy things while they slept in their beds. AKA the dream, Julia. Exactly. We all want to be doing that. I know. I, I don't know if I necessarily want to like labor in the night as my mortal body rests but I do want to frolic in the night. Yeah. I have been thinking a lot lately how I'm like, man, I wish I could read with my eyes closed or like in my sleep. Because <laughs> I'm like, I just want to keep reading the story. But God, my body is so tired. And just audiobooks don't do it for me in that same way. So that's fair. I was like, if someone could invent reading in your sleep, I would be a big fan of that. Word. It's important when we're comparing Vitalis's March of the Dead and the March of the Spirits that in both of these versions, they are framed in the remaining literature by Christian thought. So the leaders were often portrayed as heretics or witches or devils, not your average, like, good upstanding citizen, quote unquote. In some versions of the March of the Spirits, the leader is Diana, the Roman goddess of the hunt, which makes a lot of sense. Classic. Or Herodias, who's the wife of Herod in the Bible. And the Italian historian Carlo Ginsberg documented some of these beliefs, though mostly it was priests talking about women that they accused of witchcraft, who they then claimed were like partying with these like lady goddesses or lady spirits, right? Sure. Dangerously pagan. Of course. They're like, oh, no, that woman, I think she's a witch. And I saw her with the march of the spirits. And the woman can't say she wasn't there because no one will believe her. Right. She's like, "Uh, I was at home sleeping. And they're like, "Mm, your body was. Your body was. Sure. (laughs) But I did see your spirit out there. Yeah. So this March of the Spirits was also associated with the Ember Days, which are the days at the beginning of the seasons ordered by the church as days of fast or abstinence, especially the Ember Days of December. Oh, really putting a Christian Catholic lens on these stories that probably predate the the Christian 
spread throughout Europe. Yeah, I've never heard of that in Christian tradition. Yeah. So now, even to some degree, this March of the Spirits has various geographical differences. And we'll dive into those soon. But first, I think we're going to need to grab a refill. Let's do it. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to The Refill. Thanks first and foremost to our newest patrons, Stacy, Lydia, and P.A. for joining in the fun. We hope you're enjoying your monthly Urban Legend bonus episodes, your audio dispatches from Julia on every solstice and equinox for the tarot reading to kind of guide our months ahead, and all of the other fabulous stuff that you can check out on Patreon. There are truly hundreds of hosts from the past, and everybody who joins gets access to all of those same benefits from years previous. So consider joining today at patreon.com slash spirits podcast. Thanks to our supporting producer level patrons, Alicia, Anne, Brittany, Kakuta Maculata, Daisy, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, Jessica Stewart, Nieselkins, Lily, Megan Moon, Nathan, Phil Fresh, Rico Like, Captain Jonathan, Malachi Cosmos, Sarah, Scott, Spooky Lore, and Zazie. And our legend level patrons, Ariana, Audra, Bex, Chibi Yokai, Clara, Ginger Spurs Boy, Sarah, Schmitty, and BM Yep Scotty. Now, I recommended the first book called A Marvelous Light by Freya Marsk in this like alternative Edwardian England that was published in 2021. And I stayed up fully till two in the morning finishing it. It is a queer book about magic and murder and um, problem solving and uh, love in, in Edwardian England. It's so good. I once more stayed up till about two in the morning reading the sequel, book two in this trilogy, which just came out. It's called A Restless Truth. And it's all those things I mentioned, murder, queer love, uh, mystery, magic, but this time it's set on board a ship. So, you know, life couldn't be any better for me. I loved it. And now I'm going to reread the first book so I can reread the second book. This is so good. And it is going to be available for you to order from an indie bookstore near you at spiritspodcast.com slash books. I am also really excited to tell you about a project that I and my colleagues over here at Multitude have been working really hard on for the last few months, which is that we are launching classes. Now, people say all the time that podcasting is easy, but very few people describe how to actually get one going, how to grow, and how to avoid all of the complex pitfalls that might stall your project. So for the first time, Multitude is offering classes for podcasters by podcasters. I am one of the instructors from whom you can learn each week with hands-on homework and lots of valuable feedback from your instructor and classmates in our online classroom. We're starting out with three classes in our first round, kicking off in mid-January. First, I am doing a class on making a living as a digital creator. Eric Silver is doing one on sustainable podcasting, how to refine your structure and workflow so your show works with you. And Brandon is doing one on mixing and mastering for non-engineers. This is such a a good gift for an aspiring podcaster or a way for you to kick off your 2023 by working on or improving an existing project. Learn more about the dates, curriculum, and technical details, or just register today for a paid or scholarship spot by going to multitude.productions classes or clicking the link in the description. We're so excited and I hope some of you join. We are sponsored this week by Brilliant. Brilliant.org is the very best way to learn math, science, and computer science interactively, or just to hit your goals about learning and leveling up around the time of a new year. They have thousands of lessons with new ones added every month. One that I think Spirits listeners would really enjoy is they have stuff just about like how the universe works. Whether you are just a curious person who wants to know more about computers or the cosmos or math, Brilliant is going to be your favorite new destination. They have so, so many many awesome courses. They have very visual and interactive approaches to learning, and they make STEM concepts actually stick. They make them actually useful and something you can be like, oh my gosh, I've always wondered about that, but now I actually know. 
One course that I thought was really interesting was called Making Decisions. This is in their Tools of Computer Science pathway. And it literally teaches you, like, how do computers make choices? How do they turn big sort of decisions into small, simple steps where decision trees help them figure out what to do next? It's actually like a very beautiful metaphor for life, I think, and being overwhelmed. And taught me more about how computers work, which I have always wanted to know. To get started for free, visit brilliant.org spirits or click on the link in the description. The first 200 people, by the way, will get 20% off Brilliant's annual premium subscription. One more time, that's brilliant.org spirits. And the first 200 people will get 20% off Brilliant's annual premium subscription. We are also sponsored this week by NYU Press and their new title, Mid-Century Cocktails. This is all about the history, lore, and recipes from America's Atomic Age by Cecilia Tichy, who also wrote the books Gilded Age Cocktails and Jazz Age Cocktails. Each book shares the best cocktail traditions of the 20th century, using period recipes to better understand the lives of people in the past and teaching you how to make those cocktails along the way. Man, some of the names of these cocktails are absolutely wonderful, and just flipping through the index or the table of contents of this book is going to be fabulous. They are beautiful and from the press of my alma mater. So if you are someone who appreciates how cocktails can represent significant moments in history, which I think you are if you listen to this show, you should go ahead and get 30% off and free shipping when you use the code spirits-fm on nyupress.org. Again, the title is Mid-Century Cocktails by Cecilia Tichy, who also wrote Gilded Age Cocktails and Jazz Age Cocktails. It's a trilogy, if you know know. And you can go to nyupress.org where the code spirits-fm will get you 30% off and free shipping. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We've said it before, folks, and we'll say it again. Uh, brains are weird and custom and strange. And I wish that they came with a custom set of instructions just like my own brain was custom grown in my own head for my own life. I seriously, I, I really wish that there are situations where I could just kind of flip to like paragraph 11, you know, page 40, uh, sub clause B and figure out exactly what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to kind of get through the stuff that I'm working on and make myself happier. Sometimes it's a real mystery what I need and, and how to make myself happy in life. And it seems like a thing I should know. And I feel a lot of shame sometimes for not knowing how to always make my days better, make myself feel better, make myself happy. But that's honestly what I go to therapy for, is to have somebody else help me understand how to live my life and how to do it in a way that makes me happy. And I use BetterHelp for therapy. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com spirits. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com spirits. If you're spending time with loved ones for the holidays, chances are you're going to hear a lot of stories. The ones you love to hear, the ones you've heard too many times. But have you ever wanted to help your loved ones document those timeless stories? It can be challenging to write an entire book of life memories, but StoryWorth makes it fun and easy. 
This is how anyone can write a book about their life. It's very simple. Every week, StoryWorth will email your loved one a single life-related question that you pick from their collection, like what's the bravest thing you've ever done? Or what's the farthest you've ever traveled? All they have to do is reply with a story. And then after a year, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories, memories, even any photos into an exquisite hardcover book, creating a valued keepsake. I'm going to be honest. I got this from my mother-in-law a couple of years ago. Her favorite pastime is reminiscing and telling stories about the past. So it seemed like the perfect gift for her. And now every time we go and visit her at her place, she breaks out the StoryWorth books and shows us the photos and shows us the stories that she wrote down and all the questions and just gushes about it every single time. Millions of stories have already been told with StoryWorth because they make the process so simple. You can get started with your loved ones for the holidays. And before you know it, you'll both be cherishing these timeless stories for generations to come. I love the picture that my mother-in-law included in her book of all of her siblings. She's one of seven. And it's so cool and nice to see them all together in that photo surrounded by stories of her childhood. It's kind of beautiful in a way. So help your family share their story this holiday season with StoryWorth. Go to storyworth.com spirits today and save $10 on your first purchase. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash spirits to save $10 on your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the show. All right, Amanda, do you hear the, the trumpets calling? I want you to grab your mead, grab your horn of beer, grab whatever you have in hand, and we've got more hunt to hear about. All right? Yeah, I'm getting thirsty from all this astral projecting as my mortal body sleeps. We're on spectral horses. We're riding through the fields of Europe. Everything is fine. Gotta quench that thirst. <laughs> 100%. So let's first talk about the German and Norse wild hunt. Unsurprisingly, this version of the hunt is typically led by our guy Odin. Oh my god, Odin would never let anybody else lead a hunt if he was around. Naturally, of course not. And again, tying us back to this time of year, Odin was sometimes referred to as the master of Yule. Oh, yeah. I didn't know he was uh, the forefather of Santa Claus. Honestly, beard. If Santa had an eye patch, I feel like we would just be right on the money. Also, that would be badass of Santa. We would love that for him. I would. <laughs> so he is also the leader in the Scandinavian version, which is referred to sometimes as the terrifying ride or specifically Odin's hunt. And from author Dan McCoy, he describes Odin's hunt as such, quote, It swept through the forests in midwinter, the coldest, darkest part of the year, when ferocious winds and storms howled over the land. Anyone who found him or herself out of doors at night during this time might spot this ghostly procession or be spotted by it, oh. which might involve being carried away and dropped miles from where the unfortunate person had been taken up or worse. Oh, worse. Or worse. Others, practitioners of various forms of magic, joined it voluntarily as an intangible part of them, a soul, if you like, flew with the cavalcade while their bodies lay in their beds as if sleeping normally. Sometimes the members of the hunt entered towns and houses, causing havoc and stealing food and drink. Okay, so Julia, a lot of things are going on here. And part of me thinks, are these just really good dreams? Is somebody sleepwalking? Is somebody using the cover of night to uh, have a little, little party, a little, little walkabout, nice old time? Seems like a lot of stuff happens in the night here that is being kind of combined and characterized by this, you know, myth close to Odin. Yeah. You know what, Amanda? 
it's not like experiencing the wild hunt was something that everyone was experiencing all the time, right? So I think the idea of it being like a wild dream or being like a explanation for something like sleep paralysis or sleepwalking or something like that is a really valid explanation for like what these people were experiencing. And when you create a folklore or a mythos around it, it kind of just lends itself into the cycle of being like, yeah, you know, I did wake up several miles from where I went to sleep last night. Must have been Odin. Must have been Odin picked me up and took me away. and Or just people disappearing into the night Mm -hmm. and no one knows where they went, you know. And we find out, you know, several years later that Tom, you know, had a lady friend a couple of villages over, you know. Yeah, you meant to come home, then you fell asleep, and then the next morning you're like, oh no, how did I get here? (laughs) (laughs) I really like that as an explanation. That's very, very good. Yeah. I feel like in the in the like short film version of this, you know, you'd go on this huge wild hunt and then, you know, you'd like lay lay your head down filled with like meat and venison and then wake up in your bed and be like, ah, must have been a dream. And then you look, uh, you know, you like go to get out of bed and your feet are covered in mud, you know, or something like that. Yes. Or you still have your shoes on. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I love that. Oh, now I'm like picturing what a beautiful animated short like movie would be of this and it would be really cute. It is very spirited away yeah talking about odin's hunt oftentimes odin is described leading the hunt astride sleepnir who our conspirators might remember is the eight-legged horse child of loki yeah love him in this capacity as leader of the hunt odin is also seen as the gatherer of the dead and storms are associated with odin leading the hunt as well so like a large storm Thunder, lightning, furious winds was all evidence that the god and the hunt must be passing through. So, like, even the idea of, like, a big winter storm passing through is, again, indication that, oh, the wild hunt must be passing by. Odin must be near. Oh, they're creating all this thunderous lightning and because... They're just really into this hunt. Yeah. And there's all kinds of energies and they're up there in the sky and, you know, making all kinds of stuff happen on Earth. I love that, particularly because it's one of those real sort of distancing details between mortals and the gods where, you know, that kind of weather makes you want to not leave your house. And it is the consequence of, you know, this huge sprawling party happening. Yeah. And it's also kind of protective in a way. Like you just mentioned, you don't want to leave your home in the middle of a storm. And this might be like a good opportunity to like teach children being like, oh, we don't want you being whisked away as part of the wild hunt that's clearly going on outside. Listen to that storm rage outside. Don't go outside. Yeah. And it's a it's a more fun and less scary image than, you know, oh, no, I I live in a very flimsy dwelling and it's extremely windy outside. Exactly. Oh, God, I love that. Thank you. Beautiful insight, as always. (laughs) So as time went on and the stories of the Wild Hunt became slightly more current, more leaders of the hunt were adapted to suit the time and place of the story being told. In England, King Arthur is sometimes said to lead the hunt. Even Charlemagne was said to be one of the leaders at one point or another. One of my favorite examples is a semi-historical leader of the hunt that was named Hans von Hochlenberg, who was a leader who either died in 1521 or 1581, who was said to have died while trying to hunt a boar, but was injured by the boar's tusk and died of poisoning. Probably infection, but, you know, that counts as poisoning back in the day. 
Don't worry, everybody. I will say it. Very Robert Baratheon. I'm I'm picking up on some themes here. Oh, 100%. Definitely. So as he died, he declared that he had no wish to enter heaven, Amanda. My guy, what? Instead, he wanted to spend his afterlife hunting. I see. So his wish was granted and he was either cursed or permitted to lead the wild hunt for eternity. Depends on your read of the situation. You know, Julia, I I appreciate the humor of uh, Norse mythology in this way, where I think other kinds of gods, more punitive gods, more, I don't know, insecure gods would be like, how dare you not want to enter heaven? I made this whole thing for you. Fuck you. Go to hell. Um, But instead, they're like, you know what? This is my kind of guy right here. He doesn't even want heaven. He doesn't even want all that shit. He just wants to hunt. Yeah. And you know what? We we have a way for him to do that. Like, respect. Yes. Also, like, shout out to a guy being like, yeah, that killed me. But, like, I love it still. Let's fucking go. I'll just keep doing <laughs> truly, it. Truly. Truly. You can't kill me again, right? I'm already dead. Exactly. Kind of the dream. Yeah. <laughs> I love that one. One of my favorites. But as I mentioned before, the English version of the Wild Hunt sometimes featured King Arthur leading the hunt. Of course. But it's also worth noting that sometimes the Fae and Hellhounds were involved in British tales of the Wild Hunt as well. In fact, the first written text of the British Hellhound was actually related to the Wild Hunt. Oh, I mean, it makes total sense. Very thematic. Yeah. So from 1127, this was a reference to the Black Shuck, which is the Hellhound, as written by an Abbot Henry of Poitou. So, quote, It was the Sunday when we sing Exerd Quaro Odi. Many men both saw and heard a great number of huntsmen hunting. The huntsmen were black, huge, and hideous, and rode on black horses and on black he-goats, and their hounds were jet black with eyes like saucers and horrible. This was seen in the very deer park of the town of Peterborough and in all the woods that stretched from the same town to Stamford. And in the night, the monks heard them sounding and winding their horns. And Amanda, I'm going to tell you something that's absolutely wild. The account goes on to say that at least 20 to 30 of these huntsmen stayed in the area for over 50 days through Lent all the way to Easter. Oh, damn. So this account is like, yeah, not only did we all like see these huge, black, hideous huntsmen riding through and hunting through our forests, but they stayed there for like almost two months. They fully just set up camp. They're like, this seems great and uh, hung out for the full Easter season. Yeah, that's wild to me. I'm like, they stayed there that long? What? I also changed trains in Peterborough a lot when I lived in England. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is real. Julia, imagine this happening in like Jamaica, Queens. <laughs> <laughs> That's extremely funny. I love that. Yep. You're like, you remember Jamaica, Queens before everything? Yeah. That's where the huntsmen were. <laughs> exactly. You're just like making your transfer at the train station. You're like, oh, yep. I guess the huntsmen are back. It must be Lent. <laughs> I know. I know my my transfer is on track seven, but I'm going to hang out on track five for a while and just look at the little hellhounds. I love that with their eyes. Biggest saucers. That sounds cute. I don't know about you. It reminds me of the the beast from the first episode of Over the Garden Wall where he's like, you have beautiful eyes. (laughs) Exactly. So there are a few other notable leaders of the Wild Hunt that I want to mention really quick. So Grimm suggests that the British figure of Hearn was akin to 
Woden, or Woden's a translation of Odin. Mm -hmm. They both had horns like the Norse version of Odin. So, quote, Hearn the Hunter, phantom hunter who haunts Windsor Great Park, impersonated by Falstaff in Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor. Though Hearn may have been an actual keeper of the forest, he was probably a local manifestation of the wild huntsman myth known throughout the world. The usual story associated with the wild hunt involves someone who is like excessively fond of the chase, who makes a rash pledge or a compact with a stranger, either like the devil or something akin to that, and thus is doomed to hunt forever. Hearn is said to ride at night, especially during storms. He wears horns, rattles chains, blasts trees and cattle, and occasionally appears to mortals. All right, Julia, now what are the odds that this is a psyop by British Crown? Because this is their, like, this is the Crown's, like, private hunting ground. Mm -hmm. This is where Windsor Castle is. Just to sort of make people avoid hunting the British Crown's stags and such. Oh, 100% probably just like a poach, <laughs> like anti-poaching myth. Yeah, yeah. I, I like this idea. Now in my head, I'm picturing it as Smokey the Bear. <laughs> only you can prevent poaching by exactly. not running into the wild huntsman. Yeah, like not only is there probably some kind of archaic punishment for like killing the king's goat or whatever, or not goat, that's not a thing you hunt. Uh, Stag. A pig, boar. Stag, yeah. yeah. But, you know, you might get et by Hearn the Hunter. You never know. You never know. So according to other British folklore, there was also King Hurla, who made a ill-advised bargain with some sort of fae creature. Sometimes it's an imp, sometimes it's a satyr or some other mischievous fae being and is now doomed to ride with his host forever. You can totally picture, can't you, some kind of boastful king being like, ah, yes, I can ride from noon to night. I can ride better than anybody. And then the fae is like, mm-hmm, enjoy, and lives in, you know, eternal day riding forever. Incredible. From the Welsh, there's also Gwyn Up Neve, who is a character similar to Odin acting as a psychopomp who leads fallen warriors or harvests the souls of the dead. He is the king of the fairy folk and is said to also lead a pack of supernatural hounds in the hunt that harvest human souls for him. It was said that to hear the bang of Gwyn's hounds is a portent for imminent death in your family. I'm just going to say, more pleasant than the banshee, probably. Yeah, you know what? I would let a dog take my soul if it was a nice dog and it just yeah. like nuzzled me a little bit. and was like, all right, you got to go. You got to go now. I know. I'd be like, okay, no problem. The idea of like horrifying hunting dogs, not great. Don't love that. But like a sweet boy who's like, no, follow me back to the afterlife. I'd be like, okay, sweet pup, <laughs> I'll do that. Listen, I, I have no delusions. I, I know myself. I know my role in folklore. If, uh, if a sweet dog led me to certain death, I'd probably follow. Yeah, yeah. We, we know ourselves here on the podcast. We understand. Yeah. It's important. So all this to say, these were the stories that Jacob Grimm was probably pulling from when he created this unified version of The Wild Hunt. And after Jacob Grimm's publication, a decent number of folklorists took up the search and questioned Grimm's assumptions about the pre-Christian origins of the hunt. Some of them found that the hunt was very much couched in the language of paganism, but were also colored by the morals of Christianity. So these stories were a lot about people being punished for sinning or wrongdoing in a way that feels very purgatory-y, mm -hmm. which these folklorists point out is a very Christian concept and one unlikely tied with the pre-Christian beliefs. It makes total sense. Yeah, of course. 
So there are a couple of great examples of the Wild Hunt being featured in art and literature. If you have a chance, check out the painting The Wild Hunt of Odin by Peter Nikolai Arbo. Oh, yeah. Topless ladies. It's stunning. Yeah. Huge hammers. Wow. Really, like, beautiful artwork, too. And, like, the hunt is risen over this really stark field. So the mortal plane looks so barren compared to the like full like etherealness of the hunt that's taking place above it. Yeah, the the cre- like the the shape of the hunt, it's like they're emerging from a cloud mm-hmm. and the birds flying in the sky are below where the hunt is. <laughs> like they are even above the level of like the crows flying. Exactly. So this is Very pretty. A, a gorgeous painting was painted in 1872 and the wild hunt also became a pretty major theme in British novels, especially in the 1960s and 70s, mainly because of a resurgence in interest by folklorists at that time. So these novels were focused mainly for children and young adults, where the genre drew from older mythology, folklore, and other fantasy elements. So the first of note in this resurgence was Alan Garner's The Moon of Gomrith, which was a story of children mixed up in a contest between the forces of good and evil, naturally, including wizards, witches, elves, dwarves, and other fantastical beings set in rural East Cheshire. Incredible. I'm also remembering now that um, one of my favorite plays I've ever seen, Jerusalem by Jez Butterworth, also mentions the Wild Hunt. Ooh. Um, it's all about like the rewilding and like primeval spirits of England. Ooh. I was remembering where I had this like spectral like memory of it. And that's where. Well, actually, that's really interesting, Amanda, because in, in the novel, the hunt is not a force of good or evil, but it's this third force, the force of the old magic, which is a more like primeval and um, amoral source of power that was embedded in the natural world and then reawakened by the children in the novel, Mm. which I love this idea of just like, yeah, there's good and evil. And then there's this third secret thing that is the like spirits of the old gods and the old magic. Incredible. The Wild Hunt would also show up again in The Wild Hunt of Hagworthy, which was by Penelope Lively, which was set in the hills of West Somerset. And in that novel, the hunt embodied a common theme in fiction produced by modern society emerging from Christian influence, this fear of what may happen if the forces from a quote-unquote pagan past lying dormant or imprisoned by the land are set free again. And we've been talking about that a lot. We talked about that in our Poltergeist episode, too, this fear of oh, what if this thing that we harmed or suppressed in the past is going to waken and get their revenge on us? Yeah, and I think that underlied a lot of kind of like emerging 20th century modernity's fears and like morality policing is, you know, no, 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 we have to like keep a really firm hand on all of these things because it's by forsaking them or suppressing them or distancing ourselves from them that all of our like, quote, you know, good modern innovations come from, right? That like order means you have to shove away all the reminders of chaos because I think it it sees society as like tipping toward chaos if given any like like we're teetering you know on like a perfectly held tower of cards and if anything moves or there is like a distraction of a fun thing over there then you know everything is tumbling down yeah a hundred percent I think that the wild hunt as it's used in this period of time and also in a lot of modern storytelling is like this kind of fear or either a fear that this is going to come back or a, oh, I wish for the days of nostalgia past when we were more in touch with the earth and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Also, just a, a quick shout out to my fans of the Black Cauldron. The undead armies helmed by the Horned King were almost definitely influenced by the Wild Hunt as well. And of course, there are uh, practitioners of modern witchcraft that incorporate the Wild Hunt into their beliefs and practices. Uh, from what I've seen, most modern traditions position the Greek goddess Hecate as the leader of the hunt. And just in general, if you have some interest in learning more about the Wild Hunt, I definitely want to recommend uh, Ronald Hutton's work. I read a quote from his work earlier, but especially his essay, The Wild Hunt and Modern British Imagination, is very, very good. Uh, there's also another book that I want to recommend checking out as well, and that is Claude Lecateau's Phantom Armies of the Night, The Wild Hunt and the Ghostly Processions of the Undead. Incredible. So if you have any interest in those things, check it out. I think we're going to be talking about some figures from the Wild Hunt a little bit more going into the new year. So oh. keep an eye out for that. And listeners, the next time that you're out in a storm and you see a spectral retinue riding by, remember to stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.